This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. I hope everyone is snug in a safe place. We are here as always. It's Monday. It's time for our Zoomer Squad, and today we have an all-guest panel as we parse the fallout from long-term care minister Rod Phillips' abrupt resignation last Friday. He had received high marks at the start of his tenure as he listened to stakeholders and moved to table legislation that promised consequences to bad actors in the space, consequences like doubling the maximum fines, 500000 for a first offense, a million for a second. But he's come under fire recently, both for measures locking down nursing home residents and for the escalating number of homes in outbreak. Now, let's look at those numbers as of today. 346 long-term care homes in Ontario are in outbreak. Of those, 73 have no resident cases, active cases of positive residents. Well, it's a lot. 2,548 confirmed active cases of positive staff, 4,090. And that last number obviously explains the reason for the massive staff shortages that are even worse than the shortages we have seen throughout the pandemic. So what do you make of that? 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's bring in Marissa Lennox, who is producer and co-host of the Zoomer TV and the former chief policy officer at CARP, Morgan Hofferth, president of the Registered Nurses Association, and John Wright, executive vice president of Maru Public Opinion. Hello, everyone. Hi, Lydia. Hello. Hello. Let us begin with Morgan. Morgan, what was your reaction when you heard about uh, Philip's resignation? It's that we were disappointed. So RNAO was uh, overall um, positive on Rod Phillips' role as the Minister of Long-Term Care. He did consult with RNAO regularly. He seems really dedicated to the portfolio and to his role as the Minister of Long-Term Care. So we're disappointed because we did really have hopes of positive improvement in the long-term care sector. Marissa, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been a difficult year for the minister, not only because of some personal decisions he made last Christmas, but because he is overseeing a sector in crisis and Let's be honest, it's not an easy file. Generally, uh, you know, a life in public service is thankless and tireless, and it comes with a lot of scrutiny and ever so for the Minister of Long-Term Care. And so if I had to guess, you know, I suspect he was probably um, tired of being picked apart for his every move um, and thought he could make more money in the private sector. Sometimes it's the case, especially for star cabinet ministers, that he or she will step down in hopes of coming back as the party leader. But I really don't see that happening here. I think he may uh, just be done. And it's it's too bad because he's a good speaker. He's 
he's competent, and uh, I had a lot of hope for him as well. John, uh, what's your take, and how do you think uh, the electorate will see it? You know what, I joined the other two um, uh, commentators, and I think Rod Phillips was a unique member of the Ford government in that whatever he seemed to touch um, went well. I mean, he had the environment, which is oftentimes a very controversial uh, ministry, and he just got it, and all the problems seemed to just vanish. Um, the same when he was finance minister. I mean, he, he had a stellar um, introduction of the budget and working through the finances, and, and even on long-term care. Uh, I mean, a, a department which had, you know, been so badly handled over the many, many months uh, previously, he was able to get it working and seemed to be moving it forward. I think, you know, the one thing that we have to be careful about right now is uh, if you're a political party is trying to figure out who's going to run in the next election, because I don't think there's any good time for cabinet ministers to leave. But I got to tell you that after three and a bit years of struggling through a pandemic, or almost that length of time, there's got to be a whole bunch of people like Rod Phillips and the current Minister of Health, Christine Elliott, and a, and a group of others who are probably, you know, including the Education Minister, who is looking at the calendar and questioning, do I really want to go through this for another three and a half years or four years, even if it's a, a minority government? So I think if I were the Premier, I'd be asking everybody to fill out a form this week saying, are you staying or are you leaving? And try to manage that as best as I can. Hmm. Um, you see, um, people have said, yeah, he's tired. Uh, it's thankless, even though he got good reviews. I mean, you know, this is total speculation. Uh, just a warning to everybody out there. And I don't um, always or often indulge in that. But um, my thinking is, I think that they're had to have been some kind of major disagreement on what to do or what not to do that prompted this. Uh, Morgan, do you think uh, I'm onto anything there? Maybe? It's, I, I don't know. Um, it's difficult to say. I'm not part of the PC party caucus, so don't know what happened uh, inside there. But um, I mean, it's always a potential, but could also be a personal decision that Rod Phillips made to step down and um, to try something different. So it's, it's hard to say what his reason behind it would be without speaking directly to him. Hmm. It's also possible, Libby, that, you know, maybe he wasn't confident he could win back his riding. I mean, that that could have something to do with it. Again, total speculation, but it's certainly you know, not a good thing that less than six months away from a provincial election, uh, a star cabinet minister is gone. And certainly the premier loses some strength there. Well, uh, this isn't our political panel. I just read something uh, uh, damning about an NDP candidate in his riding. So who knows? Um hmm. Marissa, in terms of the file, I mean, the person designated is Paul Calandra, the House leader, who uh, is going to keep his current portfolio. I mean, you know, uh, Paul Calandra, I've, I've talked to him a number of times. He seems very competent, well-spoken. But but what I'm wondering about is, gee, I, I would have thought that at this stage, long-term care is still a full-time job. I, I was shocked to read that as well. Um, I think of all of the files that deserve a designated person to cover it, that would be certainly at the top of the list. Um, so I'm not sure he'll have the capacity to do all of those things. Maybe it'll look different after the election. It's hard to say. 
John, um, what do you make of that? Well, it may go to some of the theory that you have in that this decision was made very quickly. Uh, there might not have been a whole lot of warning given, and it may be based on some kind of political element. Um, because you would normally have some kind of transition to hand it off full time to somebody. But again, that would mean shuffling people around or bringing someone new in or taking someone like Effie Triana-Philopoulos, who is the, uh, the member who's been on that file with Mr. Phillips uh, and kind of elevating her into that. At least she would know the file. Um, but I, I think it's more to your point that maybe something did transpire um, because it, there's, I mean, there doesn't seem to be any transition. It's just in a holding pattern. I would think that in the next week or so, they've got to put somebody else in there. Somebody else. Oh, well. That- well, I don't, I just don't think that you can handle, you know, house leader and, you know, this file and a couple of other things on your plate at the same time. I would think that this is more of a holding pattern to put somebody in. It's going to manage this more full time. Um, I don't think having somebody with two or three portfolios when this is so important and in the window so often that you can just leave it to that one person who's had other responsibilities to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, but on the other hand, uh, naming somebody and changing it right away, I think would just contribute to the uh, appearance of, of disarray. Morgan, sorry. Yeah, I think it is positive that the role was given to a trusted cabinet minister, but I definitely echo what the other panelists have said. It needs to be a full-time role and someone who's committed to improvement in long-term care. We have seen some improvement, but we have a long way to go um, in order to get long-term care to the place where it needs to be for the residents who call long-term care home. Um, I think shuffling it another time could potentially cause a bit more chaos, definitely would potentially make it look like it had been some kind of uh, internal dispute and not a planned departure. But I think if it if it's going to go to somebody else, then doing that kind of quickly and getting somebody else in or having someone else take over the other roles would be, is a necessity. I don't think that it can be a shared role between um, all, all of those commitments. Uh, Morgan, have you had any talks at, at your association about your strategy in the light of this? Uh, you know, you've been uh, pretty tireless advocates. Uh, yeah, so our our strategy won't change. We'll continue to uh, partner with whomever is uh, is in the portfolio for long term care, as well as the other health portfolios, regardless of what party they're for or who the minister is. We'll continue to partner with them and continue to advocate for what needs to be done to make sure that long term care is a safe and meaningful place for residents to live, but also a safe place and a positive place for staff members who are working there. Marissa, you are a former advocate for CARP. I mean, where do you think this leaves the stakeholders and the advocates? I think it makes their job more difficult. I think now they're working with an individual whose um, time is being split between different portfolios. And so... I think at a minimum, uh, they need to be calling on the premier to make this change. This is a full-time role for one person who is committed to seeing this file improve and the lives of residents who live in long-term care and nursing homes um, uh, improve. And uh, so, you know, I think that's where it starts. 
And where, what, what would you advise stakeholders to do just to give that message directly or what? That's what we would do at CARP, I think. We would reach out to the Premier directly. We could do it through an open letter. There are a number of ways that you could reach out. Um, but also, you know, reaching out to to Mr. Calandra as well is an important first step in, 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 in bridging uh, and, you know, informing new relationships, I suppose. John Wright, um, it's interesting, you know, we're seeing a lot of homes in outbreak, uh, a lot of turmoil there. You know, I, last week I was saying I kind of feel badly for politicians because, you know, on the one hand, they're having more homes in outbreak. They put it into lockdown. They get heck for that. But as an issue at the top of mind in the public, where, where do you think long-term care is at? Wow. Um I'm not really sure, um, you know, given the fact that everybody else is now under some form of lockdown and they're all having their own issues. I mean, I'm looking at 17% of the people across this country who say that in the last three months, they believe that their own physical health uh, conditions that they've been diagnosed with have got worse because they can't even get in to see a doctor or hospital. I mean, you're looking at 80% of people who believe that the healthcare system is under such strain that they don't uh, that they're seeing, uh, you know, healthcare shortages, or that 45% of Canadians don't believe that if they went to a hospital, they get treated properly. I, I think right now it's a bit of an unprecedented circumstance where we would have had before a real focus on long-term care. I think it's it's still there. It's an important circumstance, and it comes right to mind. But Libby, you know, there, there's a pretty crowded schedule right now. Of a lot of people who are suffering during this final, you know, the last month of this pandemic. And I'm sure there's, you know, it's, there's lots of other things that are on people's minds at the moment. And, and John, do you, I mean, if you were um, guessing, do you think it will reemerge as, uh, you know, one of the main issues for the June election or will those other things supersede it? Well, I think that if, Let's let's presume for a moment that with the antiviral drug now allowed by Health Canada as of this morning, and if we are able to make sure that we can get something under control and get some form of normalcy, you know, it may be that it's not the top of mind because the cost of living and employment and things like that may overtake it. But nonetheless, it's got to remain in the top three categories of any provincial uh, premier across this country, regardless of whether it's, um, you know, heading into an election or not. This also exacerbates the long-term care uh, issues about making sure that they are financed properly going into the future. So there's going to be, you know, once we're out of one, which is the medical uh, challenges, we're going to be in the other, which is the care challenge. That's going to make sure it stays on the agenda. Mm-hmm. Marissa, I, I want to turn to something else now. And testing has become an issue um, in terms of rapid tests. That's an issue. Another reason this government is losing popularity. But uh, you've just returned from St. Bart's. You have a t- testing nightmare. Uh, and a lot of people are calling for the end of testing at the border. So uh, what happened to you? <laughs> well, so all the airlines in coalition have called for an end to testing at the border. And, you know, honestly, I don't know why the government is so obsessed with this idea that somebody could come in from abroad with COVID, um, because it doesn't matter how many restrictions you put on our border. Every variant will eventually make its way to Canada. And Omicron is clearly here. But that's besides the point, because the current rule is 
most importantly, completely ineffective at keeping out COVID. And what's more, has even greater unintended consequences, not the least of which standing shoulder to shoulder with hundreds, maybe thousands of people for hours at an airport waiting to be tested. If you didn't have COVID already, you're sure to get it there. And so my husband and I, we took uh, our daughters on a trip. And, you know, before anyone says, well, the government advised against non-essential travel, this trip was booked and paid for before COVID and had been moved twice before and we would have lost all our money. So we went. Plus, we had already had COVID in December. Um, so when we came home, we arrived at customs and the woman who gave us that pink sticker, uh, which essentially puts you in the testing line, said you're good to go. The kids have to quarantine from school or daycare settings, but otherwise you're free to buy groceries, go about living your lives. So we grabbed our bags. We walked to the testing area. At that point, it's about 11 p.m. because our flight was already delayed. Um, I had one of my daughters, she's three, sprawled across a piece of luggage and the other melting down in my arms, if you can imagine, after waiting an hour and a half for our bags. But again, besides the point, we look at this line and there was conservatively, Libby, a thousand people in it oh. at 11 o'clock at night, not, uh, not moving, standing shoulder to shoulder, no one physically distanced. Luckily, someone saw us, saw my kids. It was late. They had mercy on us. They took us to the top of the line. Even then, it still took us about 15, 20 minutes to process. So thankfully, uh, we weren't there for hours. But then listen to this. We still don't have our results back. And we came home uh, a week ago Sunday. So even if we were positive, we'd be out of quarantine by now because we're both fully vaccinated. So what's the point? You know, I had a friend who traveled before Christmas said it took three weeks for her to get her test results back. I don't understand what the point is. Just so, minute, didn't you? Did you have to get a test before you got on the plane? PCR. We both tested negative on a PCR. My husband and I, my kids are too young, um, on a PCR to come home. So, and so there was no PCR. problem getting the test in St. Bart's? Uh, or no. you weren't in St. Bart's, sorry. You know no, we had, we were in Turks and Caicos. Um, we had, we brought with us Switch Health tests, which are the oh. same ones that they do at the border, by the way. It's the NAT test. And um, so we'd ordered those online. We had those kits and we brought them with us to our destination so we didn't have to look for testing. Um, but again, you know, testing at the border, as far as I can tell, the only reason it exists is to be a deterrent. I mean, I think it's meant to, to cause a headache for travelers um, so that they just don't bother traveling. But then, you know, I think the government ought to be transparent about that. And I suspect that the government, or rather the public, would not take well to the government valuing punishment over the need for testing in the community and in long-term care homes, which is where we need these tests, because we know... Um, that testing is hard to come by. Well, I mean, I I wasn't even aware that you could do a, your own, like a take-home PCR test. Uh, and the mm-hmm. rapid tests, boy, they if you don't already have one, we've had this conversation, Marissa, they, they are very hard to come by at the moment. That's right. And so it's a huge deterrent, I think, for travelers. And I can say I have, I mean, I, I don't mean to use this term lightly, but I, I, I do have a slight PTSD from that travel experience. I think it was the worst travel experience I've ever had. It was awful. And both ways? Um, well, they don't test you upon arrival at the airport. Uh, right. So that wasn't. But the testing, I mean, I I feel, I really felt for the people that were waiting in line at 11 p.m. Uh, as I said, there was, there had to have been a thousand people in line. Families with kids lined up to get tested. And they're not processing them quickly. It's taking approximately three weeks for people to get their test results back. What's the point of that? I don't understand. It seems like a colossal waste of taxpayer dollars. <laughs> Those tests would be better off used in the community. Well, yeah, it certainly sounds like that. Uh, John, is that going to be taking a toll, in your opinion? 
What uh, in terms of traveling? Uh, well, in terms of no, in terms of uh, who who people are going to blame for that? Well, I think the federal government is probably the one who gets the most blame for it. Um, I just, you know, I think it's a bigger issue to deal with the testing and the application of how you can actually get one nowadays. Um, I mean, we had, um, I think I told you before, Libby, we had COVID in this house over Christmas where we were, our, our son brought it home from university and it was almost impossible to get, uh, publicly done testing within a short period of time. And there are, you know, we were, we had to go and pay for it in order to figure out whether or not we could get out after our quarantine period. I, I think this is now going to be the bigger issue. It's not just at the airports, but it's going to be continue to, to be everywhere where the backlog of testing, the application for when testing is needed, trying to get uh, your life back in order. If people have to wait too long, I mean, they're just going to go about and do what they want to do because they're going to self-determine that they're okay. And I think that's more of the issue now. It's just can't if you are if you have to get tested, can you actually get uh, it done and get it done in a reasonable period of time? Well, I mean, the the guidance now is that if you do get it or think you have it, you quarantine. If you're vaccinated, you quarantine for five days and then you go about your life. But you're very careful about masking. Yeah, well, I, I know that, but I think that, you know, a lot of people will, you know, look at it and say, look, I want to be tested, especially if they had plans or are planning to go somewhere or planning to be with someone. I know we, we wanted to make sure that we had all the tests done after 11 days because we didn't get a Christmas and we wanted to go and visit some people who were, you know, elderly and hadn't seen our kids for a long time. Um, if we'd had to wait, uh, you know, that length of time at 10 or 11 days, we would have done so anyways. But I still think that a lot of people think that this is a pretty tricky um, virus that, you, you know, you might want to go to the grocery store. That might be okay. But the reality is that if you want to put somebody in jeopardy, you want to make sure that you at least have a layer of, of knowledge that you are going to protect them. Hmm. I, I do think that getting, I think people want to get a hold of tests. They just cannot get a hold of tests. When we looked right. before we traveled, um, there were no, there uh, within a 50 kilometer kilometer radius of my home, I could not get a test at a shopper's drug mart if I tried. No, I before. forget it. So, um, and then the other thing you need to remember is the test positivity rate in Canada is what, 28%? And coming in from abroad is around 2%. So again, I can't stress this enough. The need is in the community. It isn't at the border. We need to be repurposing those tests elsewhere. Morgan, do you have a view of this? It's, yeah, I think the testing is a challenging one, especially with the access to testing. So the reason that we're seeing a higher percent positivity from tests that are done in Ontario, not from people who are traveling, is because you have to be symptomatic to or be in a high-risk setting in order to get tested. So the general public isn't able to access the PCR testing. The rapid testing um, is good for in that moment of time, but if you were to test positive on a rapid test, you're tracing back two days before to who you potentially were in contact with. So it's good for a moment in time, um, but does not mean that you wouldn't be potentially kind of transmitting that virus because they, when somebody does test positive, they trace back at least the 48 hours prior to the positive test. 
in order to do that contact tracing. So the testing, I think, potentially gives people a false sense of security. It is one one of the things that is helpful to prevent the spread and to keep people safe. Um, but the universal masking is still really important because there, the test is only as good as the moment that it was taken. So I think just testing and saying it's okay to go out and do whatever you want is not necessarily the safest advice. Um, I think it's really important still that people are continuing to mask, continuing to physical distance, but using the, the test as a tool uh, to help make an informed decision. I could take and, a very quick be- call from Murray and Malton. Hi, Murray. Hi, how are you today? Fine. Good, good. The lady is talking about coming through the airport and uh, that, that, she thinks that the testing in the airport is uh, uh, not worthwhile. The, the idea of this whole thing is to limit the amount of exposure. We are uh, basically under lockdown here to limit the amount of exposure. So if you have all kinds of people coming from wherever, whatever country they're in, you're, you're adding to the problem. You're not solving it. You're not curbing it. You're adding to it. Okay, Thanks. Murray, thanks for that. Um, yeah, and, uh, the one thing I think Marissa had a really good point, uh, you know, it's been a long time since I was in an airport, thanks goodness, but they can be really crowded. And if you don't have it before, you can certainly get it there. Uh, we're basically out of time. I'm just going to ask for a very quick 20 second. What would you like to leave us with, John? Uh, I think it was just rightly said. I mean, we, if you're going to go out, get tested the real way. Our son was tested twice the night before, and he didn't test positive the day after he did. Make sure you can get a test or stay the full quarantine in case you are going to see somebody and you might infect them. And Marissa, last word to you. Sure. Just one comment on long-term care. You mentioned 50% of homes facing an outbreak. I think we just need to remember the impact on residents is both physical and emotional. Staffing shortages are making it even more difficult for these homes to cope with the outbreaks. And of course, the moment you have one confirmed case, the home goes into lockdown. And now these residents are back to being isolated. This is a file that needs a full-time minister devoted to it. Okay. Thank you for uh, reminding us all of that. And thank you so much, Marissa Lennox, Morgan Hofarth, and John Wright. Appreciate your time. Pleasure. Thanks, Libby. Thanks. Okay, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, if you live in Toronto, likely your property taxes are going up and going up by more than they have in quite a while. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. If you live in Toronto, you will likely be facing the largest property tax hike of John Tory's tenure. Toronto's proposed budget for 2022 includes a property tax increase of 2.9% and a, in residential tax and a 1.5% increase in that city building levy. And with this 4.4% combined tax increase, the owner of an average home which is assessed at 
$697,000 will be required to pay an extra $141 in 2022. Uh, we already on Free For All Friday had a number of people complaining about that. 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Toronto City Councillors Gary Crawford, who is the chair of the city's budget committee, along with Councillor Shelley Carroll, Ward 17, Don Valley North. She's also on the budget committee and Brad Bradford, Ward 19, Beaches, East York. Hello, Councillors. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thank you for having us. Well, good afternoon, I guess. Okay, well, let us begin with the chair of the budget committee, Gary Crawford. 4.4%. That is pretty hefty. The mayor, uh, came in saying he would not hike taxes more than the rate of inflation. Um, and the rate of inflation, I guess, is pretty fungible. Yeah. That, again, this is my, uh, eighth budget as a budget chair along with the mayor. And back, you know, eight years ago, the commitment was to the citizens of Toronto is to keep property taxes that are below the rate of inflation, recognizing that inflation does change every year. Um, we have been doing that successfully this year. Of course, the rate of inflation is a little bit higher. Um, and a lot of that has to do uh, with, you know, the pandemic that we're in, recognizing that number one, this is a responsible budget. This is a budget that is maintaining the critical services that we all across the city need. But it's also in a time of uh, a pandemic. This is a COVID budget as it was last year. Um, and I know our staff are working incredibly hard, our city staff, to keep the property taxes as low as possible. That has been my commitment along with the mayor's. We have been doing that. Uh, and as an example, when you're looking at this particular budget, we have savings of almost $500 million in this budget. Um, and again, these are uh, cost mitigation strategies, savings that we're trying to do to keep property taxes lower. So that commitment has always been there. We recognize that 2.9% is a little bit higher than years past. Um, but again, the commitment is to continue to keep them at the rate of inflation. And it's the beginning of a process um, that will be going through over the next couple of weeks. My, my colleague, uh, Councillor Carroll, will be doing that with me. It goes off to executive and full council. So we are doing our best under extremely difficult challenges that we are having. And just to finish off to Libby, the other thing is to we, we also have to look at and recognize the support that we have been getting from the other levels of government and continue to need in this budget. So the other side of this budget is we still need $1.4 billion from the other two levels of government if we can keep, and that's just to keep the property tax level at where it is. So we're hopeful that that will happen because they have done that in years past. But as I said, this is a COVID budget. There are challenges everywhere in trying to just maintain the service. Yeah. That we have. Okay, so, but I just want to put it out there. It's 2.9% in tax plus that 1.5% increase in the city building levy. And of course, one of the ways that the city, which, uh, you know, to be fair, doesn't have a lot of revenue raising capability, but one of yeah. the ways they were getting money is to uh, sort of call it other things or take it off the actual residential tax, but it's still 4.4%. Uh, Councillor Bradford, have you heard from your constituents about this? 
Yeah, I mean, we're always uh, talking to our constituents. And uh, one of the challenges have been during the pandemic, of course, you can't go to a local diner and sit down over breakfast and talk to constituents. But there are lots of new ways to engage. And, and I think all of us do that online uh, or in the neighborhood or in the parks. Uh, so the budget has come up, certainly on a, on a morning like today when we're seeing a uh, historic snowfall. Uh, folks are appreciating the fact that we have more plow service and snow service in the downtown, clearing those sidewalks. I know everyone's working on that hard right now. Uh, but as our budget chief, Gary, said there, uh, this is another challenging uh, budget of the city of Toronto. Um, you know, we can't anticipate that revenues are going to spring back. Uh, the costs are not going to disappear next year or the year after. And we're facing, uh, you know, really historic pressures again for a third year uh, $1.4 billion gap. And, you know, right now we're seeing an Omicron surge that is expected to cost the city nearly $200 million right now. So we are trying to be very wallet conscientious. Uh, I know a lot of folks, a lot of families out there are struggling. Um, we need to, uh, to exercise some restraint at the city where we can, while also continuing to make those important investments uh, to keep transit running, to keep people housed, uh, to respond to the, the crisis and the challenges in our shelter and, and all of the services that folks rely on. Uh, we are making investments in that as well. And that's been really important for us to do. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's budgets are never easy throw a global pandemic for a third year into that. Um, you know, you're going to feel those impacts, uh, but we are keeping it to the, the rate of inflation as our budget chief articulated there. The city building levy, as you, you identified there, Libby, uh, is important for us to continue to build the capital projects that cannot stop just because a pandemic is happening. We have to continue to invest in housing and transit and other things. That is what that is there for. Uh, but we are trying to do it thoughtfully and we are trying to do it responsibly. Uh, Councillor Carroll, are your uh, constituents going to be understanding? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it is a blow because, you know, we, we list every year 4.4% property tax increase. When we say the average household, for the average household, this is $12 a month. But that includes condominiums, small in size and whatever. So for most people, it's going to be more. It's going to be more like $20, 20 maybe $25 a month more. Um, Sounds better when you break it down to a monthly bill. <laughs> well, it, it's important to put it in that context, I think, because people have to understand, um, you know, that is what it costs a month to get something better. If you're if you're not deliriously happy with every single service of the city and every state of good repair, then then that is the investment we're asking. And to put it into context, the the true property tax increase is 4.4% admittedly, but the reason we hive off that city building fund is to make the commitment to people that it this is not just about payroll. This is it, it is about investing in those bigger capital projects. And this doesn't even really do it all. Keep in mind that as much as we're doing on roads, I hear a lot from people in the summer about why is there so much, you know, construction and, and road repair going on? Because you need it is the answer. You really need it to happen. And for all the projects you'll see this summer that are a part of this budget, there are still almost two and a half billion in, in unmet uh, uh, finances for major road rehabilitation. And on the smaller local roads, another $2.5 billion worth of repairs that we won't quite be able to get to in the budget that you're looking at. So we have to carry on. 
And one of the reasons that you're seeing the, the jump this year, it's not just the inflation. Everybody knows that inflation is climbing. Thankfully for us, not as fast as it's climbing in the United States, but it's climbing. But we also, last year, thinking that would be the biggest year of COVID impacts and, and people being underemployed or unemployed altogether, evictions were, were rampant. And so every effort was made last year to keep the property tax uh, uh, increase as low as humanly possible. Well, when you do that, at the end of the day, the, the, you, you do have to pay the piper. If you're going to continue to invest in the city, you do end up playing catch-up. That was my experience as budget chief years ago, was that we were struggling to catch up with three years of 0% increases and a total deferral of all expenses and investment in roads and, and what have you. And so every time you back it up to try and, and, and help residents, you do end up increasing the backlog of things you need to invest in. So Great to hear that you are, you, uh, you are all uh, seem to be in agreement. I'm going to take a quick call from Kate in Toronto. Hello, Kate. Hi. Um, what I'd like to make a point about the 4.4% increase, your uh, taxes, property taxes, are based on your assessed value. So impact could turn around and assess me tomorrow based on what my neighbor's household for down the street. So instead of paying on 700000 I'm assessed at their sale value of 150, uh, pardon me, $1.5 million. So that's what my 4.4% will be assessed. Uh, well, I, are they aren't yeah. they aren't reassessing this year, are they? Let's just get well, a very quick. We, we're just about out of time, so uh, who can I answer just want that, to make Gary? Another point: we still have a good number of property owners who are not paying their property taxes, and I think at this point, during with COVID expenses, the city should put a stop to that non-payment and also ask for all the back property taxes owed based in over a 10-year period. Okay, Kate, thanks for your call. Uh, I think uh, that was Kate last week. Um, I know that some people, especially seniors who are on fixed incomes, get their taxes deferred. Um, she seemed quite unhappy about that, but we're we're basically out of time. Councillor Crawford, could you just quickly tell me our, our reassessments uh, on the book, on the, in the offing? Yeah, they won't be this year. I believe they will be next year. But recognizing that, yes, uh, the mill rate, the um, impact does change um, the value of property. But what what does happen, especially in the year of a, uh, uh, a reassessment, the city of Toronto through what's called a mill rate. It's a very complicated process. We actually don't take in any more money in property taxes um, ourselves when an, an impact thing. But there is, you know, there can be a change very quickly depending on where you live in the city and if property values have gone up more than city average across the uh, the city. It's a very complicated process that I've tried to explain in 30 seconds. I hope that helped. Okay. So, but you're saying not this year, next year. Yeah, next year. We always look at that and we always ensure. I mean, the hope is, is we're going to be out of this pandemic next year. We're going to be able to have a better conversation, you know, with the residents on moving forward as, you know, in, in developing the city we all want, okay. you know, whether it's more taxes, less taxes, but we are looking at trying to ensure that we can continue 
providing the services to the residents of the city. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. Sorry, I am completely out of time here. Thank you so much, Councillor Gary Crawford, Councillor Brad Bradford, and Councillor Sherry Shelley Carroll. Appreciate your time. Bye-bye. Thanks, Libby. Bye. Okay, uh, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be talking to the Ontario Liberal leader. Uh, back to the question of Rod Phillips and the Ford government when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Opposition politicians were among the first to comment on the impending departure of long-term care minister Rod Phillips, and they're pointing to it as a sign that the Ford government is in disarray. And this is happening as a new poll shows Premier Ford with his lowest approval rating ever after the biggest drop experienced by any premier since the last poll. That was a drop of 6%, taking him down to 30% approval. That according to Angus Reid. And here is how Doug Ford reacted. We go back that we did with Stephen Del Duca and, and uh, Kathleen Wynn's right-hand person or, uh, or Ms. Horvath. It'd be an absolute disaster for this province. We spent uh, the last uh, close to four years fixing all all the problems that we faced uh, when we went into office, and we're going to continue moving forward. Okay, well, I guess uh, the best defense is a good offense in terms of the poll. He said the usual only poll that counts is the election, which will be here sooner than we think. Right now, I'd like to uh, welcome Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. Hello there. Hey, Libby. How you doing? Fine. How are you? I'm I'm here. That's the good news. Um, uh, crazy weather out there. I crazy weather out there. So were you surprised when you heard about uh, Philip's resignation? Yeah, I was genuinely shocked. You know, it takes a lot for those of us who've been around politics and government uh, to, to be surprised by much. But yeah, I was really shocked. And I, you know, I just think about where we are in this pandemic, of course, and the crisis that's reemerged in long-term care homes and nursing homes with Omicron. I know it's been really tough on a lot of families out there at this moment to have a senior minister say, not just that he's not running again, but that he's leaving early. Like that's, that's, that's very, very unusual. And so I think it does speak to a lot of chaos that's happening inside of, of uh, an erratic behavior that's happening inside Doug Ford's own, own caucus and Catherine, and I think that shows up in the results of, of how they're handling this phase of the pandemic in particular. Do you have uh, any kind of insight on what precipitated this? I'm sure uh, you've been shaking the trees trying to figure it out. <laughs> I don't I don't really know for sure. You know, I think uh, having again, having been around, uh, you know, governments when you run up to election campaigns, I think it's uh, there's a natural part of, of this uh, profession or this business where people who've decided that it's time to move on will make their decisions around this time or maybe a little bit earlier than this. What's particularly bizarre about this one is that Rod Phillips has only been serving. This is his first term. So most politicians who decide that it's time to exit before an election campaign have normally been there for a few terms. They've, they've, you know, they've gotten everything done that they wanted to do. This is different. Rod Phillips is someone very well regarded in the Conservative Party, someone that people have speculated had his own ambitions to become premier one day. Uh, you know, for him, just a little bit more than three and a half years into his first mandate in a senior responsibility and responsible for long-term care homes during this moment in this crisis, 
It is, it's certainly not a vote of confidence from Rod Phillips and Doug Ford. And that's quite clear, I think, to the people of this province. I mean, my, my total speculation is that there was some kind of disagreement. That, you know, normally that would be the kind of thing that would trigger this, this move. So I don't have specific details, so it's hard for me to, to weigh in. But if you're out there and there are thousands of Ontario families who have a loved one in a nursing home, They've all been through so much. Tragically, too many of our nursing home residents have lost their lives throughout this pandemic, and it's been equally really tough on the women and men who work in those nursing homes. This has got to be something that shakes your confidence once again uh, to have that minister decide that he's going to leave early, not even serve out the next three or four months, but leave early. He, Rod Phillips is making it evident he's lost confidence in Doug Ford. If one of Doug Ford's own senior ministers doesn't have confidence in uh, Doug Ford to lead us through the rest of the pandemic or through recovery, certainly the people of Ontario won't as well. Well, yeah, I guess that's that's one interpretation in the absence of uh, us knowing. Now, um, the other head-scratcher for me, uh, not that he named Paul Calandra, but that uh, it's not going to be a full-time job, that Calandra is going to do this alongside his, what has been until now, a full-time job when, you know, it's mission-critical. Yeah, I think that tells, again, that tells all of us everything we need to know about how much Doug Ford values protecting those who are living in or working in Ontario's nursing homes. And I think there have been a lot of examples over the past couple of years where, again, we saw people tragically, more people die in our nursing homes in the second wave versus the first wave. We saw the Canadian, you and I have talked about this, the Canadian military coming in and producing a report that was quite damning. Uh, you know, I think Doug Ford took a, a tough situation with long-term care, and I can admit that. I don't have any problem admitting it. it's been a tough situation for a while, and he made it dramatically worse by by not providing responsible and competent leadership. And now in this moment, as you said a second ago, to say for the next four months, while we're still dealing with Omicron, and goodness knows what might come next, although we all hope nothing else will come next, I'm going to give it to someone as a responsibility and make sure that it's only part-time. It's just a real slap in the face to people who have loved ones living in those homes, the people themselves living in those homes, and the women and men who work there. Uh, as uh, as we said, Phillips was uh, pretty well regarded in general, uh, despite his uh, his uh, St. Bart's vacation, vacation that had him sidelined for a while, and well regarded by stakeholders since he took this over. Um, where does it leave that? And, you know, what would you be doing? Well, I think, you know, the partners and the stakeholders who were directly impacted by what took place last week that I've had the chance to speak with over the last couple of days, they're really worried. They're worried about whether or not Paul Calandra has the wherewithal to, to handle this responsibility, especially given that, you know, there are media reports out there about how, you know, things that have, that have happened in his own life that have perhaps suggested he's not the ideal person for this role. Really? I, I haven't seen anything like that. Yeah, there were some stories circulating about some issues on media from prior to him becoming an MP, an MP before he became an MPP, about issues within his own home, within sorry, his own his own family, and how his uh, elderly mother was treated. This is all on the record. It was in media. I want to say back in two thousand and eight or two thousand and nine, Libby, but I might be wrong about that. So there are a lot of people who are scratching their heads, wondering why a part-time minister, why someone who might not have an ideal past in this regard specifically especially when we're dealing with Omicron. And, and, you know, really what I would be doing right now in our nursing homes, but across across the board, 
Schools are scheduled. Well, they were supposed to reopen today. Looks like they're going to be reopening tomorrow. There's a whole bunch of stuff that I've been talking about for months for schools. Uh, better rollout of the of the booster shots, uh, N95s, better ventilation. I mean, there's a long list of things that we've all been talking about for quite some time. And I think this goes back to whether or not people in this province truly have faith and confidence in Doug Ford to navigate the rest of Omicron, navigate the rest of the pandemic, and then prepare us for a recovery. And I just, I think increasingly people in this province know he's in over his head and he's not up to the job that we need a premier to be responsible for at this point in time. Uh, so again, I mean, uh, you know, it, it it's uh, a ways from the election, but actually not that far away. Uh, is, is this going to be an ongoing issue, you think? And how are, I mean, what what's your take on what comes next with this file? Well, yeah, I think for sure it's uh, elder care in general, and in particular the piece around elder care that deals with our nursing homes will for sure be a big issue during the campaign. I think each party is going to have ideas that we're going to be bringing forward. I think a lot of, as you heard in the, the tape that you played before our interview began, obviously Doug Ford's going to come out swinging on this one. The other parties will, I'm sure, as well. What I suspect most Ontarians want to see is Yes, a plan to rebuild a nursing home sector or a long-term care sector that makes sense. But but if we do that in isolation from the bigger conversation about how we treat our parents and grandparents across the board, so yes, long-term care that truly works for them and provides them with safety and good health and dignity, but community-based home care, uh, using every tool we have available and the resources to go along with making sure people like my own parents can stay in their home and be healthy and have dignity for as long as possible. Uh, making sure that there's economic sufficiency or self-sufficiency for our seniors is a really big conversation we have to have around this. And I don't think people in Ontario want to play the blame game, even though I know us politicians, we do that an awful lot. I think people want to see who's got the most thoughtful and responsible plan going forward that will actually make things better. And that's that's where I'm I'm doing my best to focus most of my energy. And I know that we're going to have more to say that about that as Ontario Liberals in the weeks ahead. Uh Finally, uh, we don't have much time left. A new poll today uh, showed Doug Ford down another six points to only 30% approval. What's your view of that? You know, I think people, are their confidence and their faith in Doug Ford to govern this province, to lead this province responsibly and in a thoughtful way, I think, is being shaken very badly over the past years, and it's understandable. But I don't put a lot of faith in polls. I just want to keep my head down and keep working really hard and try to give people a sense that I'm someone who wants to lead this province for all of us. Okay. And uh, let me make the point out there, people. Uh, I'd love to talk to Doug Ford about this uh, anytime. Uh, Stephen Del Duca, leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Libby. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.